Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties podcast. Today, we will talk about Federalist 10. Federalist 10 is one of the most important essays in the entire Federalist Papers series, so we will go a bit more slowly through it. I like to break these essays down into three big ideas to try to get a better handle on them. So, here are three big ideas from Federalist 10. Big idea number one, the question of faction. This point goes in many different directions some of which we can trace out in a little while. One point worth highlighting here concerns majority faction. Now, faction looks like the big problem in Federalist 10, uh, uh, maybe at first glance, but it may be the case that it is in fact majority faction in particular that is the problem to focus on. Big idea number two, uh, the question of Republican versus Democratic government. This is an important distinction for Madison. It is worth remembering that he was defining these terms himself. Your definitions may differ. Dictionary definitions may differ. So you want to keep your eyes on what it is that Madison says in his own voice about what makes a government Republican and what makes a government Democratic. Big Idea 3. Now, Big Idea 3 is a continuation of Federalist 9. Um, And indeed, the title of Federalist 10 suggests that it's a continuation of the ideas in Federalist 9. This would be Madison's stress in Federalist 10 on the benefits of a large and extensive republic. Um, And and those of you who've just listened to the podcast of Federalist 9 uh, may want to think about the order of the argument offered in Federalist 10. Federalist 9 was about the question of whether republics ought to be small or big. Federalist 10 is a continuation of that discussion, or so the title would suggest. So one way to write a continuation of Federalist 9 might be to begin with the big republic question. Madison did not do that. So, big idea number one, the question of faction. Let's begin where Madison began, with the first two sentences of Federalist 10, quoting Madison here, quote, Among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, None deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. Just two sentences, but I think there's quite a lot here to consider. Now, when Madison referred to uh, a well-constructed union, He was thinking about the country as governed under the Constitution. It may be worth considering whether the dangerous vice in question to which he refers is faction in general, or the violence of faction in particular. He refers explicitly to the violence of faction, but then the argument here is about faction in general. And it may be the case that the reference to what he characterizes as a friend of popular governments may serve as a reminder that Madison was thinking in terms of popular governments and perhaps even that he considered the government described by the Constitution to be a popular government. Now, when Madison wanted to define a faction, he focused not on its size, but on the character of its opposition to other members of the community. And I'll quote Madison here as he tries to describe what he thinks a faction is. Quote, By a faction, I understand a number of citizens whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated 
by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community, end quote. So, a faction is a group whose uniting principle would lead either to violation of the rights of other citizens or violation of the interests of the community, those interests one conceived as, quote, permanent and aggregate, um, which I think Madison uses to distinguish that from, say, the passing interests or partial interests of the community. Now, it's not precise enough to be very useful, but one way to think about faction at first glance may be this. Uh, think of faction as the bad side of politics. Arguably, groups in politics should either defend people's rights or defend the common interest. When groups in politics don't do these things, using Madison's definition, we can call them factions. But if that is the differentiation between factions and healthy group politics, then it may be difficult to get rid of factions. And something like that seems to have been Madison's thought. Eliminating the causes of faction could, on his account, be achieved by destroying liberty. Liberty means the possibility of doing the wrong thing. Eliminating liberty would eliminate that possibility, but at too high a cost. One might also seek to eliminate the causes of faction by eliminating the differences among citizens that give rise to faction. Madison thought this would not be practical. People have differing opinions. We take this for granted, and Madison asserted it, but it's worth pointing to Madison's explanation of this. Quote, as long as the reason of man continues fallible, and he is at liberty to exercise it, different opinions will be formed, end quote. This may be just a passing claim, but it's still noteworthy. It looks like Madison's asserting that differing opinions come from human propensities to make errors. And it seems as if our passions both shape and are shaped by these opinions, so we have emotional commitments to our personal opinions. People also have differing faculties, and this fact seems difficult to eliminate. And we'll quote a few sentences from Madison on just this point. Quote, The diversity in the faculties of men, from which the rights of property originate, are not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interests. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. From the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. And from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors ensues a division of the society into different interests and parties. Now that's three sentences and three complex ideas all in a row. The first sentence, property rights have their source in, quote, the diversity in the faculties of men, end quote. This says more than it might appear at first glance. One might say that it is apparent that differences among people lead to differences in the ability to acquire property, but Madison appears to have taken the point a bit further into the realm of rights. He then said that the protection of these faculties is the first object of government. As with the first idea, this may go beyond what is obvious. Most people today might say that the important role of the government is the protection of the rights of the people. And perhaps Madison is once again connecting the faculties of the people with their rights. Thinking about the third sentence in light of the first two sentences, one can say that for Madison, human diversity leads to variation in property holding, and that the job of government is to protect the rights of property holders. 
Because of this, society will be composed of varying interests and parties. The larger point here is slightly tricky, but it seems that Madison thought that the first object of government is the protection of just those diverse faculties that might otherwise be eliminated in the name of eliminating the causes of faction. That these faculties create economic inequality would have been no surprise to Madison. Indeed, managing the consequences of such inequality is one of the core tasks of government on his account, and I'll quote him here at some length. Quote, the most common and durable source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold, and those who are without property, have ever formed distinct interests in society. Those who are creditors and those who are debtors fall under a like discrimination. A landed interest, a manufacturing interest, a mercantile interest, a moneyed interest, with many lesser interests, grow up of necessity in civilized nations and divide them into different classes, actuated by different sentiments and views. The regulation of these various and interfering interests form, forms the principal task of modern legislation and involves the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of government. End quote. So this looks like a turning point of the argument. Madison acknowledged the idea that no man is allowed to be a judge in his own cause, but went on to explain how members of government are often in just such a position. We want government to avoid picking winners and losers, but it often it can't help but do so. All decisions favor some and harm others, and all legislators are also members of groups that are so favored or so harmed. To say that we need what Madison called, quote, enlightened statesmen, end quote, is, as Madison saw, to miss the scope of the difficulty. And I'll quote Madison for just a few sentences here on this point. Quote, it is in vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust these clashing interests and render them all subservient to the public good. Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm, nor in many cases can such an adjustment be made at all without taking into view indirect and remote considerations, which will rarely prevail over the immediate interest which one party may find in disregarding the rights of another or the good of the whole." End quote. Up to now, we had been learning about why faction is bad in politics. Now it looks like we come to see how or why it is unavoidable in politics. So much on Madison's account for shaping the causes of faction. What about controlling the effects of faction? In order to answer, in order to answer this, Madison made a crucial distinction between a faction consisting of a minority and a faction consisting of a majority. Don't forget, when he defined faction, he defined it not in terms of the number of adherents of a given faction, but rather in terms of the character of their beliefs. So, Republican government can solve the problem of small factions because Republican government is majoritarian. So this means that the real problem for Republican governments is the problem of majority faction. The principle of majority rule in a republic means that little can stand in the way of majority faction. In two sentences, Madison associated the problem of majority faction with the fate of Republican government itself. Quote, to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction, and at the same time to preserve the spirit and the form of popular government, is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed. 
let me add that it is the great desideratum by which this form of government can be rescued from the opprobrium under which it has so long labored, and be recommended to the esteem and adoption of mankind. End quote. This leads straight to big idea number two, the character of republican government, in contrast to that of democratic government. As you might have gathered from previous essays in The Federalist, republican government was a contested concept. Different people had different definitions. Different people looked to different historical examples. Madison led up to his characterization of Republican government by pointing to an important feature, though one less about the definition of Republican government than one perhaps uh, prefatory to it, or one that has to be considered in advance of the question of Republican government. Madison, in discussing how to cope with majority faction, reminded his readers that, quote, neither moral nor religious motives can be relied on as an adequate control, end quote. This is noteworthy. Many supporters or theorists of Republican government had pointed to virtue as a central feature of Republican governments. And there are, and were, competing claims about how to make government work better. Should one focus on changing the institutions of government or on changing the people that are governed? Madison, in this light, seems to have been an institutionalist. Institutions are reliable in ways that moral and religious motives may not be. In the course of defining Republican government, Madison decided to define it in contrast to a pure democracy, which he defined as, quote, a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, end quote. This kind of government would not be able to address the problem of majority faction, Madison believed, and they'll quote him on this. Quote, hence it, is that such, hence it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal, liberty, uh, personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths, end quote. Now, let's stop to observe that Madison defined democracies as small. So this claim about democracies, which may appear to be about democracies in general, may in fact apply only to very small ones, directly run by citizens. By contrast, Madison pointed to a couple of different features of republics. One of these is the representative character of republics. Democracies involve the people directly in the public business, but in a republic, the public business is conducted by representatives, elected by the citizens. A second feature described by Madison is the greater extent of a republic compared to a democracy, more citizens over a larger land area. Now, the second point of contrast between democracies and republics, as described by Madison, quote, the greater number of citizens and the greater sphere of country over which the latter, that is, republics, may be extended, end quote, leads our analysis from Big Idea 2 to Big Idea 3. He described this in the context of differentiating democracies from republics, but it is also a way to assert the status of large republics. Big Idea 2 was about the contrast between republics and democracies, Big Idea 3 is about Madison's discussion of specifically large republics. Now, the larger the republic, the larger the range, and seemingly the better the choice, 
of people from whom to choose to be representatives, according to Madison. Also, the larger the republic, the less likely it would be that dirty tricks might prevail in an electoral context, and the greater likelihood of the, quote, suffrages of the people being more free, end quote, with the result that more deserving representatives of better character would be more likely to be selected. Madison was aware that one could go too far in this direction, resulting perhaps in, quote, representatives too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests, end quote. But he thought that the Constitution could strike a balance, and I'll quote him just briefly here, quote, the federal Constitution forms a happy combination in this respect, the great and aggregate interests being referred to the national, the local in particular, to the state legislatures, end quote. One can see the relevance of the large versus small republic question in light of this claim, insofar as it seemed to track arguments over how much authority should rest with the states as against the national government, arguments to which we have referred when discussing earlier essays in the Federalist Papers and to which we will refer again. A related feature of a large republic is the larger number of groups that are likely to exist in such a system. The logic here is this. Large republics are more likely than small republics in view of their size to contain a diverse range of interests on Madison's account. This diversity of interests makes, up, makes a majority faction less likely, and the greater dispersion of members of a ma potential majority faction makes communication among them less easy, creating, in part, what we would now call collective action problems. This is especially true of those engaged in, quote, unjust or dishonorable purposes, end quote. Because, according to Madison, the secrecy necessary to sustain such purposes is hard to sustain in numerically larger groups. All of this led Madison to the assertion that factions were best controlled in a large republic, contributing to a defense of the government described by the Constitution, two potential subjects of factional politics, religious difference, and differences of wealth, received direct commentary by Madison at the end of Federalist 10, each being mitigated in its effects, he believed, but in a large and extensive republic. And just to quote Madison as he concluded uh, uh, Federalist 10, quote, in the extent and proper structure of the Union, therefore, we behold a Republican remedy for the diseases most incident to Republican government. And according to the degree of pleasure and pride we feel in being Republicans, ought to be our zeal in cherishing the spirit and supporting the character of Federalists, end quote. Considering the issues raised in Federalist 10 in light of the politics of today and tomorrow may lead one in many directions. Let's go back to a point made by Madison concern, concerning large republics. And just quoting Madison here, quote, in the next place, as each representative will be chosen by a greater number of citizens in the large than in the small republic, it will be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried, and the suffrages of the people being more free will be more likely to center in men who possess the most attractive merit and the most diffusive and established characters." It must be confessed that in this, as in most cases, there is a mean on both sides of which inconveniences we found to lie. By enlarging too much the number of electors, you render the representatives too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests, as by reducing it too much, you render him unduly attached to these, 
and too little fit to comprehend to pursue great national objects, end quote. There is an implication here that one may reach a limit to the benefits of increasing the size of a republic, such that one may, as Madison put it, render the representatives too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests. Now, the USA is much larger now than it was when Madison wrote Federalist 10, and the country governs many, many times the number of people that it did in the late 1700s. So, if Madison was right on this point, how big is too big for the USA? This isn't a question for which there is a simple answer. And if the main concern is about understand the understanding of the, repre of the district by representatives, there may be ways in which technological improvements mitigate or help address uh, potential problems with the need to understand the circumstances of a given district. Uh, in order to best answer this question, it may be worth thinking about how much of this problem uh, of understanding a district is shaped by the sheer increase in size of population and area of congressional districts. Maybe then, too, how much of that can be solved easily through the use of ordinary transportation and communication unavailable in the late 1700s, and how much the remainder of such a problem might be solved by other means. Thank you for listening to the Sunwater Institute's Rights and Liberties podcast. If you are interested in more of our activities, please check us out at sunwater.org. Thank you.